0: Psalm 23, go ahead and turn there. I've mentioned this to some of you, I think at some point, and maybe I've mentioned it to all of us, that um, one of the joys that I have in preaching is in the preparation. I've gotten to the point where I'm not sure which is more enjoyable. The, the sweet time with the Lord in diving into His Word, seeing things that I could not have seen before. If you're a teacher, you know that the teacher always learns more uh, than the hearer, and you just see things in a new way. And and then you think, man, I get to, I get to peer into the greatest Book, which is the revelation of God of all time. And I, I can't tell which is better, the preaching or the preparation. And in seeing so much in Psalm 23 in the lead up to last week, uh, some of you know this that I, I tend to write out my sermons. So each, each time I, I try to internalize a, a manuscript, and um, I, I realized, and I do that for your benefit, so that I don't get to the point where I go, well, we're out of time today, or this is, this is a two-hour sermon. And so I had discovered once again that this was a 70-minute sermon because there's just so much, there's so much in here. So we divided it up last week if you're with us. We looked at Psalm 23, 1 through 4. And then today we'll be looking at Psalm 23, 5 through 6. I want to read to us, it's familiar for many of us, but for the sake of being familiar, let's refamiliarizing ourselves. Let's read verses 1 through 4. And we looked at the imagery of a shepherd who provides comforts and who protects. And he is for us, but ultimately he is for what? His name's sake. And we looked at passages, kind of went right down the line that shows that ultimately God operates for his glory. But when he does that... And he shows his glory to you. It's for your good. And so that's a, a good thing that God would be for himself. And so as we follow this good shepherd, his staff and his rod, they, they help protect us, but also drive out the wolves. You'll notice how in Psalm 23, one through four, it begins by talking about the shepherd. It ends by talking about his rod and staff. And so it bookends it really well right there. It's a whole, whole unit there. And that shepherd will take you sometimes, still waters for the nourishment of your soul. Sometimes he's going to take you to the valley of the shadow of death and he's going to sustain you until you see him face to face. Some of you are are there right now in that valley of the shadow of death in your own way. The great news is to know that you will not be there forever, but the one who sustains you will meet you face to face on that last day. That was last week, okay? Now what I want to do is I want to read verse 5 through 6, okay? Read, read out loud with me. That's a, it's good that we do this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah, it's God's word. And so when you, when you see it in this light, the good shepherd won, but now the imagery shifts. And we see that our Lord is also a good banquet host, if you will, who blesses us and who promises to bring us into his house forever. And so let's see once again, as we peer into these ancient words, what this has for our life. But before we do that, let me pray. And we'll dive in. Lord, this morning, every single one of us are coming to this passage. We're worshiping from all different vantage points today. And as we bring in our stuff in the church today, Lord, this word says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And talks about how you will bless us. Lord, We come to you the way the psalmist does so often. Lord, you said this is who you would be for us, and now we need you to be that for us. This is who your nature is, so now we need it to be the case for our lives. Let us realize the reality of what you've already been for us as we walk into this. Let us see more clearly. Let us have encouragement and hope, conviction as well, all of it, so that we will be conformed to the image of Christ when we go out of here today. Help us, Lord. Holy Spirit draw near to us. Amen. Okay. So first, let's let's look at verse 5. The good host prepares a table before me and he blesses me beyond all imagination. That's the first bit. And so you have that imagery that is there. You anoint my head with oil. It's the first one. The second one is my cup overflows, but the first part, you anoint my head with oil. Kind of an ancient common ritual you see these in various places in the Old Testament, is that you would have oil mixed with perfume and you would pour that upon the honored guest and it would give off a sweet fragrance, it's a sign of hospitality. Second imagery there is my cup overflows and it's beyond measure, giving so much more than what is needed. And every time I come across this, I think of a mission trip that I took to Columbia probably it was, I think it was 2013, Justine went in 2012, and we were working with a, a school called America's Unitas, and uh, each one of us had a host home that we would be, uh, be a part of, and then we would go to the school, and we were uh, putting on everything from skits to lessons to, to interacting with students, and we were there about two and a half weeks. If you're kind of inside of the, you've been a part of the MB family for a while, this was what was called an action trip at the time. And so, anyways, these people knew how to feed us, and for breakfast, I would get stuffed, and then an hour later, we would go to the school, and they would feed us again, and it was, it was like a three-course meal every single time we ate, and they would give us these things called plantains, and I'm here to tell you, I hate plantains because of how many I had when I was there in Colombia. and you would sit there, and you'd be eating them. You'd, you'd eat it. It was fine, right? You'd eat it, and then as you're, you're finishing a bite of something, they're replacing it. So your plate's never empty. And so at a certain point, you have to put your hand over the plate. And they're just laughing at you as they put more food on top of your hands, right? And so I think of that when I think of this little line, my cup overflows. In Aaron's mind, the imagery is of the Lord going, I'm gonna bless you, more than what you far more than what you need. And so when you think of it like this, It's the exact opposite, the exact opposite of the kind of God that says you must pick yourself up by your bootstraps, or I will approve of you once you do this thing for me. Once you prove yourself, then you'll have my approval, like perhaps some of us the way it has been for our own earthly parents. The way the revelation of God's word describes our father is not this way. In this case, it's too good to be true, is actually reality. You don't my head with oil, my cup overflows. I think it's a great reminder to pause here at this moment and remind ourselves how we need to constantly reorient ourselves to the God of the Bible. I bring this book up often because of the impact it's had on my life, that book Gentle and Lonely by, by Dane Ortlund. And the thing that struck me when I read that book and what he reminded me constantly of was that in my mind, I am, I am prone to come up with a picture of God that looks more like myself or, or looks like the, how I would be God if I were him. And yet the actual God of the Bible, when you really encounter him, is far. it seems like it's too good to be true. I don't deserve this. This is far too much. But far too much is actually reality here. He is far more powerful and severe than you could have imagined. Be yet far more gracious and loving and compassionate and forgiving and tenderhearted and gentle and lowly than you have thought as well. I think the problem with our minds is that it's just far too dull when we think of God. We need the revelation from His book. So we need to move beyond black and white. Our own minds move into the color that Scripture gives us, unworthy sinners. By the way, my cup overflows. And this talk of blessing um, is not a license for you to then go. Think that God, his only blessings that he gives are material possessions. I I would like to think that I did not need to say that. Um, But it's always a good reminder that we do not limit God to the genie in the bottle that gives us stuff when we pray for it. Right? The greatest blessing that he can give you, if you go back to last week, is himself. It's not his stuff. And so that's why we're saying, that's why we've been saying these things, that every blessing that he gives you is secondary to the blessing that he gives of himself. And those blessings are meant to point you to him. So this is the banquet hall. He blesses you beyond measure. You might have noticed that as I read this and as I've been going through this, I, I passed over a critical line. What was it? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That's a a key part here. So in the presence of my enemies, oh boy, here we go, okay? That little phrase suddenly changes the imagery up a little bit. We're not just talking about a banquet hall where the Lord is blessing you. Perhaps you think as one commentator I read says, maybe it's like a table in the middle of a battlefield where the Lord has just won the victory and all the enemies are laying dead around that changes the imagery up real quick, right? Uh, or, or maybe uh, because it says, in the presence of my enemies, perhaps uh, the imagery is pointing us towards you're sitting at a table having a meal with the Lord and your enemies are, are around and there's nothing that they can do about it but watch you be blessed. They have to sit there gnashing their teeth and there's nothing they can do about it. That's the picture that is painted in my mind. But either way, the message that is being communicated is one of vindication. Vindication. I love sweet vindication. I love being proven proved right. I love being able to tell, say, "I told you so." Um, I love uh, being able to prove others wrong. But in this case, we can take no credit. Uh, we did nothing to vindicate ourselves. Our Lord has done everything. We didn't give ourselves the status of being able to sit at His table. He gave us that status. He props us up by his strength, not our merit, what he's done in the presence of our enemies. That word enemy, though, okay? We needed to find that word enemy. And here's, as I've been thinking about this this week, I thought I could leave it and just explain and move on to the next thing. But the conviction that came over my heart was, how prone you and I are to make enemies out of people who are not our enemies. And it's important that we define what we mean by the enemy. In Luke 10, 29, there's a lawyer who asks the question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You know how Jesus responds? He responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan and tells the story about um, how a man was going down a road and talks about the various people that should have taken care of him when he had been taken out by robbers did not and yet a good Samaritan showed up on the side of the road and did what others should have and so Jesus calls us to be a neighbor to all by showing mercy to all and so the answer to the question who is my who is my neighbor it's almost wrong-headed it's that you should know, show mercy to all people but you think about that question though okay what is my enemy that's my neighbor who is my enemy it's a critical question, and I think Jesus answers it. We've looked at this already in the Gospel of John. Let me read it for us. John 15. remind you, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And so who is the enemy of Jesus' followers? The answer is... It's the world who hates Christ and his commandments. Jesus is calling us in John 15 to draw a straight line between ourselves and him. And so when the world hates you, take heart, it's really because it hates him. You are attached at the hip. There's nothing you can do about it, Christian. And so the hatred of the Christian is really a hatred for the things of God and for Christ. I don't know about you though, but I have yet to meet someone who says, maybe think of a handful of people, but you will not find most people say, I just don't like Jesus. Most people never say that. I can't stand Christ. Uh, most people will, will say, I don't like your Christ. And you see what's underneath that is what we're prone to do is refashion Christ according to our own image. This is the problem. It keeps coming up. So some, most people will never say, I hate Christ. But the thing is, who their Jesus is is not the Jesus of Scripture. The giveaway is that they actually don't like the things that he says in the Bible. They don't like his commands, that it upholds, his word. Its claim towards objective truth is perceived to be, be too arrogant. The Bible's sexual ethic, too ancient. Its definition of basic realities like marriage, man, woman, it's too stringent. It's evaluation of man as sinful before a holy God as too pessimistic. Prescription of salvation only through the cross of Christ as too restrictive. As people look at God's word and look at Christ. If they actually read it, I don't I think there'd be far fewer people who would say, I like Jesus. And so the evidence is in the refusal to obey, the evidence is the lack of fruit. You can see this clearly outside of the church, but the reason why I'm taking time this morning to emphasize this for us is so that you and I, as believers in God's church, this visible church that's here right, right in front of us, that we would seek to have a pure church. This is why one of the things that's so unpopular in evangelicalism today is talking about church discipline. I just hate that word, right? Church discipline. The idea sounds, you may be immediately think of someone hitting somebody over the head with a bat or something, but in reality, the believer is called to keep his brother and sister accountable because he wants to see them succeed. He's also to see, are there those amongst us who are here for dishonest gain that really aren't of Christ? They're the kind of person that starts off well, but when they went out from us, it shows that they were never of us. Man, I don't know about you, if this if this. It's something that you can relate to. But I have had friends in my life, I've watched them give lead in the receiving of the Lord's Supper, and now they're not following Jesus. You have people like that in your life where you saw them start a certain way, and they didn't end that way. I have plenty of my friends in college who started one way and did not. Now they are not following Christ. The fruit is not there. They went out from us, but they were not of us. And so, what I'm saying is, is that it's possible to deceive the brethren, but over time, look at the actions of someone's fruit of their life, and you're going to see whether they are for Christ or for their own gain. And so, genuine Christians are faithful to the end. Counterfeits who are his enemies start well but don't end well. And so, I want to encourage us there should be a level of severity that we look at our own selves and we look at each other and go, do we actually look like the Christ that we proclaim? And then for those who do walk away, we have the same mindset as Paul. We mourn with tears when Paul says, for many of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This, this should be kind of weighty for us when we think about this idea of, of seeking to make sure that they're are believers and not enemies of Christ, even within God's own church. So these are human examples, outside and inside the church, that stand in opposition. And yet, we also know that there's enemies that are unseen. We know that famous passage from Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." And so our greatest enemy ultimately is the one who has already been defeated 2,000 years ago, and that is Satan and the forces of darkness. And so David says to you through this word, all of those enemies, whether you can see them or whether they're unseen, they've got to sit on a bench over or off to the side while you watch your Lord bless you beyond imagination. Rest in the reality today that you who are in Christ and the love that you have from the Father will never leave, cannot be undone by anything in all of creation. I have to set this up for this part next. Though. It prepares us to define, if that's who our enemies are, it helps us define who our enemies are not. Friend, our enemies are not believers within God's church. It's so important that we get that. They're not each other. We're so good at making enemies out of those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's our defense mechanism. I want you to understand that just because you disagree with someone, that doesn't mean that they're your enemy. In fact, God may be placing... (laughs) God may may place people in your life that are going to tell you half critiques that are half true and half false, and you've got to sit there in humility and listen to it. Don't miss out on the message that may be half right in there. And in that critique that that person may be giving you, they're not your enemy. They're your brother and sister in Christ. And so I want you to just think about this for a moment. We're going to take communion here in a few minutes. Matt, I'm doing your job. You'll you'll do this again in, in a few minutes. We're going to take communion here in a few minutes, and I just want you to think, do you have enemies in this room? How in the world, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ and part of this church, can, can you call that person an enemy and then with the same, your hand and with their hand, put your hands in that thing right there and partake of the body and blood of Christ represented in the elements when you're at animosity with your brother and sister? And so some people have asked me the question, how has your adjustment been to Huron? I will tell you this. Um, it's been quite easy. <laughs> Moving to Huron has been quite easy. The adjustment, the adjustment has been stepping into the pastoral role here. And the thought that has hit me is this. I have never had to deal with this in my life, but here's what I realize that if you and I have a disagreement, I still got to see you at Walmart sometime next week, right? At some point, I'm going to see you, whether I like you or don't like you, okay? This is the kind of community, when I, when I think of the early church, like in Corinth, there's one church, right? And you can kind of feel that a little bit more in a smaller town, then you can feel back, back where I've lived in the past, Dallas, Fort Worth, you just go to another church. Here, you're still a good chance you're going to see somebody, and so I want you to consider this. There's those of us who may disagree here. I'm saying this broadly, okay? There's those of us who may disagree here, maybe at animosity with one another. And the reality is, in an environment like this, a church community like this, neither one of you are going anywhere. And so you got to sort this one out because you're still going to see one another, and that person is not your enemy, but is sitting at the same table with you, friend. Consider that this morning. Consider that. And then in the midst of thinking about this table, I want you to take it even a step further as we're so prone to look at others and go, that's my enemy, and not consider that we were once Christ's enemies, not consider what Christ had to go through on our behalf. Keep in mind, he sat in the presence of his own enemy with Judas to accomplish what he did for you. But put it this way, Christ sat in the presence of, of his own enemy so that he could redeem you who were once his enemy so that you would be redeemed in order to sit in the presence of your own enemies. Christ won. Part of the message of Hebrews is that he is able to relate to us, not as an indifferent God, Zeus over there off to the side, just lets the world go off and just wants to shoot lightning strikes down at us. We have a God who came down incarnation and for us understands what we go through. And so he understands what it's like for some of us. Some of you have told me the things that have been said about you, the injustice that you have experienced. You think Christ doesn't understand what you're going through? Of course he can relate to you this morning, friend. So he's relatable, but on top of that, what he went through was able to transform you who were once his enemy so that you could sit in his presence and then empower you so there's nothing that the world can do as the Lord blesses you. Fear the you're not the one who can take away the body, but you're the one who can take away both the body and put the soul in hell, and yet he doesn't do that for you. You think about the hope that this gives for the Christian. The the difference between the Christian and the secular person who watches news all day long is that we have a hope. Like, my hope is not in what Sean Hannity says or what some guy on CNN says. My hope is what Christ says, and I don't have to be anxious when you sit in the presence of your enemies and they cannot do anything about it, you can look at what is happening all over the world. The angst of what you see with Ukraine or what you see with Russia or what you see uh, in, in the Pacific. All of those kinds of things. The things you see with how people are all over, all messed up in their understanding of human sexuality. All of those things. And you can go, Lord, what will this be like for my children? What will be like this be like for the next generation? You can have those questions, but you don't have to live in anxiety because you have this one who still promises to bless you regardless. He sat in the presence of his own enemy to redeem you who were once his enemy so you could be anxiety-free and grace-filled in the presence of your own enemies. That's verse 5. Verse 6 says surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you look at different translations, it's going to say goodness and mercy. Your version may say loving kindness. I think the I'm critical of the NLT, and then it just has a great, uh, a great uh, translation, relentless pursuit. What, what a picture there. And so you look at some of these passages that, that emphasize this. Let me just read out of First Peter two. First Peter two says this. For this is the will of God that by doing good. that by doing good, you should should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. This kind of mindset that is able to look at what the world does and still be able to honor those around you. And yet, as you see all the problems in front of you, you will know that they come to an end, even as you suffer, because you will be in the presence of the Lord. We should read Revelation 7 far more often than we do, and this is what it says. Therefore, there are, Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be there. Who, shepherd? And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The imagery that you may need to walk out from Psalm 23 this morning might be merely this. That no matter how much you mess it up, no matter how far gone you may feel like you are, no matter how fearful, no matter how anxious, no matter how shame-filled you might be, it does not change the reality of God's relentless pursuit towards you. And it will give you the ability, when you know what he has done and what he will continue to do, that you can still speak those words regardless of what you're going through, that the Lord is my shepherd, and in him all that I have is in Him. I have all that I need, and it's an access to Him. And so I want to ask you this question as we end this morning. How are you doing at that banquet hall? Is it a banquet hall in the Lord's house? It's filled with blessing, or is it filled more with your own anxiousness? And secondly, I would also ask you, consider this. I've been doing a couple funerals over the last 30 weeks, and I love the opportunity to be pastoral um, and to be with some of our close friends who have gone through a lot. And, and mortality just goes in your mind when you're thinking of those these kinds of moments. There's some of you, this is the last time you may ever hear Psalm 23 preached. This is the last time you may ever hear it. And I just want you to consider that every single word that is in here is for you. When it says, look at the pronouns once more, you notice that it's not in the plural as in so many cases. It is in the singular. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me. And it goes on and on and on. I would like you to consider that if this may be the last time you hear this, or if even this is the first time that you hear this, that Jesus, the good shepherd, is for you, the individual. And after all of these years, even if for the first time, he promises to never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that this morning? If the answer is yes, kind of, turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And it's such an encouragement to know that he is the one who is the source. He goes in front of you as the object of your faith, and he will fill you with the faith that you need to trust in these realities. So let the imagery of the Holy Spirit be impressed on my brothers' and sisters' minds, and let them be encouraged that you are the good shepherd who is going to We hope you've enjoyed today's message like to know more about bethesda church you can check us out on the web by going to our website which is bethesdamb.org that's bethesda m as in mary b as in boy.org or check us out on facebook by searching for bethesda church of hero have a blessed day